This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. When Europeans first came to New Zealand, they called them the bush canary, and they were once one of the most abundant and conspicuous birds in the forest because being bright yellow, you know, and singing loudly on the mainland. Now they're sort of limited to beech forest. Kia ora, no mai haramai kiteau hurihanga. Hello and welcome to Our Changing World, Kokleck and Kanantani. Joe Tilson is the biodiversity coordinator for the Wanaka area for Southern Lake Sanctuary. 90% of the time they're in the top sort of 10% of the canopy, so they're really hard to see. But mohua will be on the trunks like eating insects and, and dropping moss, and sometimes you just see this moss raining down, and that's, that's a clue that there's a mohua up there. On this day, a stunning sunny day, we're just outside Makarora. At Cameron Flat, we waded across the Makarora River and are now in a part of the bush just west of the river. And while she's got a lot of different projects to think about, right now it's the mohua, the small yellow and brown forest songbirds with their distinctive bright yellow heads that are on Joe's mind. We have a small population of mohua in Makarora, which the local forest and bird group, Central Otago, branch has been doing protection work for like 25 years plus and yeah they're really a species that is in massive need of protection if we're going to keep them on the mainland. There's only a few populations on the mainland in the South Island left and they basically are all going down the gurgler a little bit except for probably the Landsborough and yeah, we, we just we just want to do everything we can to a learn about our population here, but also monitor them to try and figure out exactly how many birds we've got and what kind of recruitment's like. Recruitment refers to how many new birds are being born, are adding to the population, which for Mohua can be reasonably good. Each year they can lay up to four eggs, and once they've fledged, the pair can raise another brood. Mohua are insectivores, nibbling at the critters that live in the tree trunks, and they nest in holes in trees. This makes them vulnerable to stoats and shiprats that climb up and tend to nab the females as they sit on the nest. And unfortunately, due to a beachmast event last year, where the trees all seed at the same time, this year they're experiencing an influx of rats. Which Central Otago Lakes Branch of Forest and Bird volunteer Mo Turnbull can confirm. This season, it's rats. We've got a rat plague. There's a, a mast season, so there's lots of beach seed around and lots of food for mice and rats. As an example, the line along the back of the hill here, Joe's line's got 56 traps on it, I think. And when we cleared it last week, we got 40-something rats. So that's a lot of rats. Mm. At the moment, there are so many rats, we're clearing the lines every fortnight. 
which is a big imposition on the volunteers. A retired geologist, Mo has long been involved in the unpleasant task of killing invasive mammals, first with his partner on their land on the Otago Peninsula, and since moving to central Otago with this large group of committed volunteers. We've got about 60 people, believe it or not, on a roster. Many of us are gold card holders, should I say. I wouldn't like to say what the average age is, but it's well over 30. And they all clear all of the trap lines in the Makarora Valley in the second week of every month, every year. So a big effort, a lot of coordination, an awful lot of bait for all of the traps. The total number of traps at Makarora now that um, Forest and Bird and Southern Lake Sanctuary operates about 1,200 traps, which is quite a lot. We're beside a trap. What kind of trap is this? It's a, a, a bog-standard Dock 200 design. There's probably half a million of these out in the country. They're very robust, very well-designed and humane traps built or targeting primarily mustelids, um, weasels and stoats, and also rats. So they're a, a, sing, a single bang and that's it. They're not self-resetting. The automatic resetting traps like the AT220s and good nature traps are considerably more expensive. So being a, a volunteer outfit without access to vast amounts of money, we use these because they're effective and our volunteers are relatively cheap to clear them. <laughs> yeah. If we could have automatically resetting traps everywhere, we would, but we just haven't got the money. Mm. So, so instead, it's the, it's the manpower, it's the hours that you guys are putting in. Person power, please. Person power, Some of our yes. best trappers are females. <coughs> Excuse me, of course, <laughs> person power. <laughs> yeah. it, they're a good team, they're very good. Mo likes trapping because it gets him out in the bush regularly, but he's pragmatic about the limited impacts the group is having. Really, they're just holding the line for this little local population. Something that it does pay to keep in mind is a trap line, all it's doing is sustainably harvesting predators in a corridor about 100 metres wide. And when you look up there, I mean, it's not possible. It is just not possible to trap all of this area. Yes, steep-sided hills just covered in beech forest. And there aren't that many trappers in the world who want to do that. Well, I'd do it if only I was younger. But it's it's just it's impossible to do. Yeah. In spite of suggestions that trapping is an option to aerial 1080 operations, I guess that's the bottom line. It just, there aren't enough people to do it. Which maybe sounds pessimistic, but that's not the case when I ask Mo about the future. I'm pretty positive about the predator control program. We've got that very good team of volunteers. We're still recruiting them. We'll be getting better technology. The flash traps will become cheaper. We'll have more of them. And from what I read, within 10 years... Trapping will be just one of the many effective tools that we've got. So in terms of predator control, I think we're on the right track. Until that magic silver bullet comes along, what I would really like to see would be the Southern Lake Sanctuary going from strength to strength. 
in the two years that we've been operating, they've made a huge difference. For instance, we've now got three people on the ground here paid to support all the volunteers, and they're operating all the way over the place, up the West Matuki, the Dart and the Reese, all around Queenstown. So our challenge is to keep the funding. Uh, Jobs for Nature got us off, up and running, but what we're now doing is getting the money for long-term funding. And we'll, the sanctuary will still be here in 2050 when we're going to have a big party <laughs> when, when New Zealand's predator-free. So there's a message to the Minister of Conservation. Potholes will keep, mohua will go extinct. Southern Lake Sanctuary, that Joe works for, is essentially an umbrella organisation that's wrapped around existing local trapping and conservation groups to support them and enable a regional-scale effort. The future might be bright, but for this present year, the sanctuary is putting bait stations in to try help the mohua in the absence of a 1080 drop. When we get these unmitigated mast events, we lose birds, and mohua can go, they can become functionally extinct within a single season. That's how vulnerable they are to rats. Normally in a mast year, all, all of the sites that have mohua and other um, critically threatened species Doc um, intervenes with a aerial 1080 application um, and muckerel is on the list but unfortunately it wasn't high enough up so, so they decided there wasn't enough funding this year to do this area. So with the rats flooding the forest, Joe and others are concerned about this little mohua population. And I mean, I say little, but they don't know precisely how many. They're really cryptic species so it's quite hard to pinpoint exact numbers and you know, over the last sort of decade, there's been transect monitoring on fixed transects that DOC have run, and we've uh, done them for DOC over the last year. And on those transect lines, moho numbers are dropping. We found extra birds over here, where we're standing right now, which is why we've got two new trap lines in this bait station network. And my aim for this season is to do a complete census of birds, territorial birds, really, in the Makaroa Valley between Davis Flat and the Blue Pools. And there's birds on the other, up the blue and the young and the Levin and the Oar. There's not many, but they are around. I was in the Levin a couple of weeks ago and there were, as soon as I got away from the main valley face, there was birds. The Blue, Young, Levin and Oar are all names of rivers that snake down the side of the mountains to meet with the Makaroa River that runs alongside State Highway 6 in this section of the Haas Pass. But we're talking large areas with a dense beech forest and a cryptic bird that often flies with its cousins the whitehead, popocotea, and brown creeper, PPP. So to properly monitor across time, you'd need to capture and band individual birds, the census Joe mentions that they're doing right now, and then in the coming years, slowly walk through the forest to spot and identify the banded individual birds. If only there was an easier way. What we're trying to do is use sound to identify individual birds rather than just species. And we think this has great potential as a monitoring tool. This is Dr. Laura Moles. She works with Digilab and Atsarao Sanctuary. Also, it could be really useful for learning more about their behaviour because a lot of birds' behaviour is involves their communication with, with each other. And if we can identify individuals, we could study their behaviour without 
having to be right next to them all the time. It's kind of like being able to spy on them um, without without having to disturb them at all. Leave your recording device yes. in the forest. <laughs> yes, <and> exactly. <laughs> download all of their yeah. intimate conversations and gossip. Yeah. Who doesn't like who? Who's kicked who out of what patch of the forest? Exactly, exactly. There's several steps to the process. So the first step is you have to actually find the species. That's a problem that a lot of different um, groups around the world have been working on, and there's actually quite a few different solutions to that now. So we're at the point where you can collect lots and lots and lots of data, and you can find a species you're interested in relatively quickly. And we're, de you know, we've developed ways of, you know, machine learning. Um, algorithms that can do that too for a particular species. Then the second step is once you find songs of the species you're interested in, trying to teach it to recognize the different individuals. For either of those two processes, the first thing you have to do is have labeled data. So the machine doesn't magically know what's a kiwi and what's a mohua. You have to tell it, these are the kiwi songs, these are the mohua songs. Someone has to go through and label all of that data, attach, you know, attach meaning to all of the different sounds um, they're, they're making. And similarly for individuals, we need to follow around individuals so we can tell the machine, you know, which bird is which. And for mohua, what we're doing is we're color banding birds. So they each have little individually unique combinations of color bands on their legs. And then I follow them around <laughs> with a recorder and try to get them to sing and then collect as many songs from different individuals as I can. And then that's the data that goes in to train the machine. It's kind of the, the idea of using this with sound is something that a lot of people can probably relate to if you think about you're doing a, a website where it's saying, you know, click all the motorcycles, mm. <laughs> click all the dogs, you know, that that's um, essentially what we're doing um, and what we've been doing for years with those kinds of systems is we're training a machine to recognize different objects, different images. And that's the same kind of thing we're doing with the sounds because we turn the sounds into a picture, into a spectrogram, and then the machine is looking at all of those different pictures and trying to look at them in different ways. It you know, goes through back and forth and figures out what works better and what works worse based on what it knows the answers are and um, works out the best way of doing it. You can imagine the potential of a monitoring tool like this. But just getting that training data is tricky enough and involves a few steps of its own. Step one, find Mohua. The group has split up. Joe and Grant Maslowski, here to help out for the day, are on a trapline further up the hill, keeping an eye out. Laura and I have been slowly moving along a trapline closer to the Makarora River. She stops beside a log and pulls something off a clip on her backpack. So you've just switched on a little speaker. Yeah, so we're going to try to play some um, chattery calls from Mohu recorded nearby. Um, there may be a pair in this area. We're going to try to see if we can get them to make some noise for us so we can find them. So the idea is you play a chatter call and, and the bird might respond. Yeah, because the birds are territorial, but here they do seem to have quite big territories because there are so few birds around, they can just spread out and kind of go quite a ways before they hit a neighbor. Oh! 
jackpot. Yeah. John Grant, John Grant. Um, we have a pair that has responded at CH7. They're heading a bit more towards CH8. Uh, good one. So we will move a little bit towards CH8, which is the direction they've gone. And then if uh, your Grant could pop down here, we will try to put up a net. Mohua found, we move to step two. Catch and ban the birds. So you said you're looking for a net spot. A place to put a net, yes. So what we want, we need a stretch of preferably about nine meters. Where we don't have too much stuff in the middle, so a tracking line is really good for that. You want lots of low stuff on both sides, because the net's only about this tall. So you want the birds to have something to aim for. So it's like two meters tall net. Yeah. And uh, you want it in the shade as much as possible so that it's less visible. And here we seem to be a little bit more sheltered from the wind, which is also good. So we'll set up our net and see what happens. Laura and Grant start setting up the net with a very practiced air. Grant weaves branches out of the way while Laura assembles the light metal poles she's been carrying that get pushed into the ground and tied to nearby trees. Out of Laura's massive backpack comes a very fine black net, which gets threaded onto the top of the poles. So mist net is up. Yeah. Is it called a mist net because you can barely see it? I'm not sure why it's called a mist net, actually. Possibly. And you just kind of did a little um, treasure hunt of, uh, of speakers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I'm hiding speakers on either side of the net. The idea is that if we can get birds to drop down close to playback, we want them to get down to the level of the net and then try to get them going back and forth. So speakers on either side to try and yeah. do that, to, to yes, call them exactly, down. Yes, exactly, yes. If they come them. down here, then I can switch the playback to the other side. And hopefully they go and try to attack that bird. Grant, Laura and I hide just up from the mist net, spying on it. She pulls out her phone and starts playing the Mohua calls. And it's not long before we hear some replies, two birds come nearby, and then one drops down and gets caught. Okay, let's get that one out, and then I'll keep playing for the other one. Do you want to get up? Look at the other one is right here. Yeah. So is it likely that these are a pair? Yeah, so it's probably, it's almost certainly a pair. They do sometimes have helpers, so they'll have young birds from previous years who might be sticking around to help raise this year's chicks. Um, and they are notoriously hard to tell males from females. <laughs> and the, if they're really young birds, apparently that's quite um, apparent because they have more kind of rusty stuff, rusty grayish feathers around their head. But what Again, what we found with the first few birds we've caught is that when we do catch two, one tends to be noticeably larger than the other one as well. So we, th- we think we're getting males and females, but having bands on them will help us confirm that. Grant slowly, and oh so carefully, untangles the bird from the fine net, gently puts it in a cloth bag, and returns to where we're sitting. So we just get a few measurements. We'll get a, um, a rough weight. We'll measure the wing, and we'll measure its leg. And those three together will help tell us whether it's a male or female, hopefully. 58. 58. And we're going to put some bands on it. Mm -hmm. And we'll check its tummy to see if it has a brood patch. So yeah, it can go ahead and start. And then we'll send send it on its way. And each bird is getting a unique combination of colors so that we can tell them apart. They're quite hard to see up in the canopy. 
So we're trying to keep the combinations as simple as possible. So I'm doing floor green. Is this the first time that braids have been banded here? That mohua have been banded in this um, area? There were five, um, five birds that were banded two years ago. Um, and that was to help out with a PhD student who was doing some genetics. Three of the birds we think are still around and have been seen, seen this year. So beautiful. Yeah, they are really pretty. They're, the yellow just glows. It's such an amazing yellow. So you've gone for a bright fluoro green, green. <laughs> so you'll be able to spot them. Yeah, so we put two of the same color on one leg. And this year, we're putting on the opposite leg to the color, we're putting a white over a metal. So if you see a white over a metal, then they'll know it was a bird that was banded this year. And this measurement is of? Um, so we're measuring the wing bone. It's the tarsa metatarsus, so it's kind of, kind of like analogous to kind of your longer foot bones. 30.37. Yep. Do you want anything else? Um, just blow in the tummy. I don't expect anything dramatic there, but... No, I breathe that. Okay. Maybe a quackle protuberance. Oh, yeah, it does look like that, doesn't it? If it's a female and they're nesting, when they start to incubate, they'll lose a bunch of feathers on their tummy, so they just have that nice bare skin that they put right against the eggs. Males of not all species of birds, but some males during the breeding season, that they get a cloacal protuberance because they just have, you know, the one organ that does everything. And it, it gets a little bit kind of swollen and pushes out a little bit because they've got, you know, their, their testes are getting all geared up for the breeding season. So it makes things bulge out a little bit. <laughs> and this bird appears to have that. <laughs> so we suspect, based on the measurements and the lack of the brood patch and probably the protuberance, that this is a male. And you can also get a look at his little tail feathers. See the little pins on the bottom? Yeah. Yeah. Because they kind of use their tails as a prop, as they're moving around on the trees, they wear away the fluffy, kind of the fluffy bits of the feathers. Banding done. Measurements taken. Cloacal protuberance noted. The bird is released back into the forest. But we're not finished yet. Laura moves to step three. Recording. They're still hanging around singing, so we'll probably have one more go at catching them. But in the meantime, while they're singing, I will try to get some recordings of them. And what I'm after is um, recordings where I know exactly who's who, because that's how you get the first batch of data that lets you work out whether or not you can tell apart individuals. And for the playback recordings that you've been playing mm -hmm. to them, you kind of said that it was a mohua chatter. Do yeah. they just have the one call, or do uh, they have a no? Series? We've been playing back. We've been playing back several kinds of calls. So they have the chatter, that kind of machine, you know, high-pitched machine gun fire song. Right now they're singing in the background. That's the song that we seem to be hearing most this time of year. The da -da 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 kind of noise, um, and then a second. A second call that's kind of halfway in between, where it's got some kind of melodic bits and some chattery bits. And they also, in each population, each bird has a whole kind of set of little songs, a little repertoire. And um, these are the kinds of songs we hear right now, but during other kinds of interactions or possibly different times of the year, they'll have a whole different set of melodies um, that they sing as well. And that's going to be one of the challenges for trying to identify individuals is can you tell them apart 
with each of those different <laughs> calls or do you have to listen to one, one or the other to work out who's who? This is my satellite dish. Except for sound. Satellite, yeah, dish, satellite for sound. dish for sound. So yeah, when I um, so when I'm I'm banding birds, people ask me if I'm um, you know playing volleyball, and when I have this out, people ask me if I'm listening for aliens or <laughs> trying to get sky or <laughs> things like that. You're like, yep, those are yeah, my two hobbies yeah, for the forest. Yeah. <laughs> Looking for extraterrestrial life yeah. and volleyball. <laughs> yeah, sometimes both at once. <laughs> Recording gear on, Laura stands in the forest for the next 20 minutes. Satellite dish pointed at the newly banded yellowhead, singing merrily away. This isn't the first time that Laura and her colleague Dr. Carol Bedoya have done this. In collaboration with the Paparoa Wildlife Trust, they tested the algorithm with a population of Roroa, great spotted kiwi, near Blackball on the South Island's west coast. But it was significantly easier to get that training data. How we collected that data was we had um, people who were already radio tracking the birds to monitor their nests anyway. Um, When they found a breeding pair, they put a recorder nearby the nest. Um, So they knew which birds were at that burrow because they had them fitted with radio transmitters. And because their territories are so big and they're so aggressive, we could be really confident that any loud sounds, loud calls we picked up from those recorders belonged to those birds. So we were able to tell the algorithm, this is Kakaho and this is Kawakawa, and <laughs> yeah, we could tell it which birds were which. For this Mohua project, I wonder, is this a given? I mean, if you feed in enough data, will it definitely work? Or might their calls be just too varied to sort out? It's not guaranteed, but from what we know about birds in general, birds can recognize each other as individuals. Um, and basically every species where people have done experiments to work out whether they can recognize each other based on their songs, the birds can do it. Even if they have really complicated songs, even if they have 20 different songs per individual, the birds can do it. And if they can do it, in theory, (laughs) we should be able to do it. It, So it shouldn't be impossible, it just might be really hard. And the more subtle the differences are, the more variation individual birds have, in the way they sing their songs, the more data we'd need to find the little kernel (laughs) of individuality for each of those birds. Um, And it might also be that some of the things they sing have an individual, individually distinctive component and other things they sing might not. So we might also need to puzzle out which part of the song um, we we need to focus on. Another complicated thing with mohu and a lot of songbirds is that they sound different from place to place. So that will be another reason we're interested in working on mohua is that they have that geographical variation. So we can try to challenge <laughs> the algorithm to see, you know, if we trained it on mohua from Makarora, how much data would we need to get it to learn individuals in Landsborough? You know, do we need to kind of start from scratch? Or if we say, this is how you tell apart individuals in Makarora, can it extrapolate to differences among birds in in another population? Laura reckons they'll need between 10 and 20 individual Mohua recordings to train the algorithm. Luckily, like the bird today, when they sing, they tend to sing for quite some time. So she's able to collect a lot of songs in one go. 
getting that training data is the tricky part, but the actual code they'll make available to others. All of the code we're developing is open source. So we it's the kind of thing where because you can apply it to so many different species, the way Carol is developing it, we would like people all over the world to be able to pick this up and apply it to their own species. You know, if you can get the training data, <laughs> and you can use it. And we'd also like to develop it to the point where you need less and less training data. Um, you get a machine that's more capable of, of figuring this thing out um, with less information to start with. At some stage, this may become a paid service they offer. But for this project, it's a neat early days collaboration. Laura and Carol get data to help test and improve their algorithm. And the sanctuary gets, potentially, a powerful new tool. If we can work out how to tell birds apart based on their voices, then that could be a new monitoring tool for them so that these birds that are really hard to see and keep track of, and you know, even once you have them banded, you could just listen and know, are the same birds there from year to year? Is the female still there? Um, how many different pairs do you have in an area? By, just by putting out recorders for you know, a couple of months in the spring and listening to see who's still there and, and who's not. At the end of this trip, the group banded 12 new birds and caught one already banded. Laura collected audio for two pairs, and there are now 12 audio recorders out in locations where they caught birds. Laura will return in December to do more recordings. Right now, Joe, Mo, and the rest of the team are hard at work trapping and baiting, trying to keep the rats in check. And in an email update from Joe last week, she said, on a lovely day, going very slow in the forest, she managed to find the nests of two pairs, both with chicks at feeding stage. Thanks to Joe Tilson of the Southern Lake Sanctuary, Grant Moslowski and Dr. Laura Moles of Digilab and Atarao Sanctuary. Thanks also to Mo Turnbull, local Central Otago Lakes Branch Forest and Bird Volunteer. This episode was produced by me, Claire Kincannon, with help from Justin Gregory and Ellen Rikers. Sound engineering is by Phil Benj and Tim Watkin is executive producer of podcasts and series at RNZ. Our webpage is at rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. And if you want to get in touch, we're on Facebook or X at RNZ Science. The Southern Lake Sanctuary was one of the initiatives funded by the Jobs for Nature program that was put in place during the COVID-19 pandemic. Many conservation roles were funded for different activities across Aotearoa. And a new short video documentary series released on the RNZ website, YouTube channel, delves into six of these projects. It's called The Turning Point. And if you have an interest in the environment or conservation, it's well worth a watch. Find it at rnz.co.nz slash turning point or on the RNZ YouTube channel. Tenakwe ifakarongomai. Thanks so much for listening. Ko klekin kananaho. Have a great week. Kia pai. The wiki. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.